It is simply called 24. And it's one of the most popular television dramas of all time. Each series, and I must confess I'm not a fan, but this is what I've read anyway, each series covers one 24-hour day and is made up of 24 episodes, each consisting of one hour of real time in the life of counter-terrorism agent Jack Bauer. In the first series, he tries to prevent the assassination of an African-American presidential candidate and at the same time rescue his dysfunctional family. In the second, he tries to stop a nuclear bomb going off in Los Angeles and everyone is waiting to see what will happen in the third series, which is now underway. 24 has been described as groundbreaking and experimental. Whether focusing on 24 hours in the period of a main character is original is quite another matter. Almost 2,000 years ago, a man named Mark authored an account of the greatest drama in human history, which he introduces as the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And early in his account, he recounts a day in the life of Jesus. And you'll find this in the passage we read together, and it will help to have it in front of you. Mark 1, verses 21 through to 34, in our series, Following Jesus in Mark's Gospel. The day in question is a Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, in the town of Capernaum, which is on the northwest shore of the Lake of Galilee in northern Israel. Saturday in Capernaum. It begins in the morning in the synagogue, the religious meeting place of the Jews, and there the action centers on a congregation where Jesus is teaching, and then it shifts to focus on an individual in the congregation, a man from whom Jesus expels a demon. It then shifts rapidly to the afternoon and to a private home, the home of Simon and Andrew, two of the recently called followers of Jesus. And there there is another healing, that of a sick woman, Simon's mother-in-law. And finally, after sunset, the action shifts outside the home into the street where crowds of needy people gather that evening, seeking help from Jesus who heals the sick and drives out demons. It's an exciting and moving drama. But unlike 24 or any other man-made drama, this is no fictional story, this is reality. The real-life account of the Son of God come to earth in human flesh and his interaction with people and their response to him. And as such, this drama challenges us and the person whom it claims Jesus to be. So today we look then at this day in the life of Jesus. And I simply want to do two things. First, to focus on Jesus himself, and then secondly, the response of the people who heard and saw him. First of all, then, Jesus himself. And I want to identify one particular thing that comes out of the story, the authority of Jesus. Mark tells us in his Gospel, it's the Jewish Sabbath, our Saturday, the day of rest when the Jewish people met to worship God. As you will know, the main center for Jewish worship was the temple, which was located in Jerusalem. However, it was obviously not practical for every Jew to go to Jerusalem on every Sabbath day, and such journeys were reserved for the major festivals that took place during the year. Instead, since the period when the Jewish people had been exiled in Babylon six centuries before, and the original temple had been destroyed, it had been the practice of communities of Jews to meet together on the Sabbath in the places where they lived. 
And on their return back to their land from exile, this had become institutionalized and the people had built buildings specially for this purpose. These buildings were called synagogues. The word synagogue is a Greek word which simply means to gather together. It was commonly accepted practice that whenever you got ten Jewish families living in one place, that you put up a building. Whether they had a Nidri-type appeal to do this, I don't know. But they built a building specifically for the purpose. And there are still synagogues all over the world, of course, where Jewish people meet or met yesterday. So, Jesus and his followers, being Jews, followed the normal practice of the day and went to the synagogue on the Sabbath morning. The service was very simple. There was no singing. Uh, There was no ceremonial. What happened were three things. Uh, There were prayers offered to God, often written prayers. There would be a reading from the Hebrew scrolls which were carefully brought out from their place. If you've ever been to a synagogue, you'd have seen this. Either from the Hebrew law, that's the first five books of the Bible, or the prophets. Someone would unroll them, read them out, and then people would comment on what had been read. Uh, These comments would normally be given by people who were called scribes in the older versions of our Bible or teachers of the law. These were men who were respected for their knowledge of the law of Moses, who'd studied it in great detail. Now, if there happened to be a visitor in the congregation, someone who might have something to say, he could be invited to take part. And perhaps the reputation of Jesus has already preceded him. Whatever this case, on this particular Sabbath, Jesus rose to the occasion, or or strictly speaking, he sat to the occasion, because in those days you sat to teach. Someone wondered what it would be like sitting to teach in Charlotte Chapel. It wouldn't be very practical. You wouldn't see me, would you? Unless I had one of these elevated seats like a tennis umpire. No, we won't do that at Nisri or in Charlotte Chapel. In his gospel, as opposed to the other gospels, Mark doesn't tell us quite so much as the other writers about the content, what Jesus actually taught. He tells us some detail, we'll see that as we go through Mark's Gospel, but Mark is particularly interested on the impact or effect that the teaching of Jesus had on those who were present. And what happens on this particular occasion, what is striking on this particular occasion is that people are particularly impressed by the teaching of Jesus. His authority is seen in his teaching. Uh, Look at verse 22. Uh, The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. In other words, along they came like we might to, to church and everybody's sitting there expecting the usual sort of thing and then suddenly something quite different and striking happens. The person speaking says to me that has an impact on the congregation gathered there and the people notice and they say, this is different. This is not like the teachers of the law. This is something radically different. And the word that they attribute is the word authority. Now, authority is not so much, well, it is conviction about what the person is saying, but it's conviction that comes from the content of what the person says. You see, the teachers of the law were men who had studied the law of Moses in great depth. And they tried to apply its commands to every possible situation you might find yourself in. The most famous example is, and we'll look at it in our series on the Ten Commandments in a few weeks, 
the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. On the Sabbath day you're to do no work. And these scribes said, yeah, okay, on the Sabbath day you don't do any work. But what constitutes work? And so they, they looked at every possible situation. I once heard a man who was, who was a Jewish convert and he told me one day he was going to the synagogue with some friends and someone noticed that he had a handkerchief in his pocket and they said, stuck in the top of his pocket and they said, hang on, you're breaking the Sabbath because you're carrying something. Now, that might seem petty to us and what should I do, he said. He said, put four corners in it, put it on your head and then you're wearing something, therefore you're not carrying it. Now, you don't travel on the Sabbath so... What distance constitutes travelling, breaking the law? And so there were hundreds and hundreds of these kind of laws that they devised, trying seriously, we may think it's amusing, but they were trying seriously to find out what, what God's law actually meant in practicality. But it came a, became a whole rigid system. And the most famous of these teachers were called rabbis. And what they said was recorded orally. People remembered them and passed them down, down the generations. So, Here's a normal synagogue service uh, and the law is read or the prophets and, and one of the teachers of the law gets up and he says, now Rabbi so-and-so said on this and then somebody jumps up and says, yeah, but Rabbi so-and-so also said this and Rabbi so-and-so said this. In other words, they just repeated what other people had said in the past. There was nothing original and probably nothing very interesting. Now the people noticed that Jesus didn't teach like this. He didn't teach as the teachers of the law. He spoke with originality. And rather than dealing with the minor points of the law, he dealt with the great principles of the law. And instead of using esoteric religious language, he used the language of every day in his wonderful parables and stories. Jesus himself, of course, said that what he said ultimately was not original to him. In answer to his critics, John records in his gospel that Jesus said, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Now, whenever the words of Jesus are proclaimed and explained clearly, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, then God's word still comes with authority. It, it is not the same authority that Jesus had, but it is delegated authority. You may remember at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew records that Jesus, before he returned to heaven after his death and resurrection, he commissioned his disciples and he said, go and make disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. In other words, Jesus passed on this responsibility. He entrusted it to his people that we are to go and make disciples. And that where this happens, where we depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit, God speaks with power and conviction. Some years ago, we went on holiday in another part of Scotland, a very nice part of Scotland, and we went to church on Sunday morning. As Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, we went to the local church on the Sunday morning. And when it came time for the sermon part, which we're expecting after the normal hymns and prayers and everything, uh, the minister stood up and said something like this, and I can still remember it because I was so surprised. He said, Those of you know me, who know me, will know that I don't believe in sermons. After all, what do I know that you don't know? Why is my opinion any better than yours? So let me share a few thoughts with you. And it's still impressed on my mind what he said at the beginning. His opening sentence was, 
Farmers are better off than most people. Well, most farmers are, but I know some of you who are farmers who think you are not too well off, but generally farmers are better off than most people. And so he went on, thankfully for not for very long, only for ten minutes, because that was another of his convictions. Um, a friend who was with me, who had a lot more courage than I have, and who I won't embarrass by mentioning his name, said to him at the door, why don't you try preaching what the Bible says? Contrast this with the Apostle Paul. Writing to the Christians in the Greek city of Thessalonica, people had become Christians through his preaching. He said, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And that should be our conviction about the word of Jesus. Once we lose that, we lose everything else. It is delegated authority. So the authority of Jesus was seen and recognized in his teaching. But as this story in the synagogue develops, we also see his authority extends to another area. It's also seen in authority over the powers of evil. As Jesus is speaking, you can only imagine what it would be like. I can as a pastor if somebody, somebody shouts out. Just then a man in their synagogue, verse 23, who was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now notice what the text says. The man in question is described as possessed by an evil spirit. This is not simply, as some have suggested or even insisted, a first century description of some kind of mental illness, multiple personality disorder or psychological dissociation. Rather, it is a description of a condition in which a distinct and evil personality foreign to the person concerned, has taken him or her over and is able to speak through them and then respond to questioning. The Bible describes such evil personalities as agents of Satan who do his bidding. One well-known writer comments that the spread of a confident certainty in the non-existence of demons may be their greatest triumph. So if we're to take this seriously, and we'd be very foolish not to do so, uh, there are several important things we need to consider. This is the first time in the ministry of Jesus this has happened. If you were here in our previous studies, you'll see how Jesus confronted the devil in his temptation in the wilderness. It was a kind of private battle in which Jesus won the victory. Now he emerges victorious to be challenged in the public arena. The kingdom of God is near. The king has arrived to claim his kingdom in the lives of individuals, the allegiance of his subjects. And their present ruler, the prince of this world, is unwilling to let them go without a battle. It would not be inaccurate to say that all hell breaks loose when Jesus appears on the scene. Now, I want to say that conflict and opposition is not a bad sign, but a good sign. It's a sign that there's something happening. And they often, it often occurs in very unlikely places, like synagogues or churches. Maybe this man has sat in this synagogue for many years listening to the teachers of the law without ever interrupting them, without anyone even perhaps being aware of his true condition. Such is the power of the word of Jesus. That when the word of Jesus is preached, it stirs up a hornet's nest. And this is especially true at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. It is a kind of battleground. And the lines are being drawn. 
And I want to say, those of us who've worked in different parts of the world, and some of you who come from different parts of the world, you won't need me to convince you about this, that where the gospel penetrates a society for the first time, it stirs up this kind of hornet's nest of opposition. And all sorts of things, come, I was going to say, come out of the woodwork, but come out of people. Places where Satan has ruled and challenged for many, many generations, maybe hundreds of years, and when the gospel breaks in, all hell breaks loose. And sadly, the reverse is true. In a society where you see the influence of Satan and his hosts, it arises in inverse proportion into a society where true faith in Jesus is in decline. You can trace that in our own society in Britain. And that is sadly why occult activity is on the increase at this time. Now, Satan's strategies are normally more subtle. He uses underhand ways rather than direct ways like possession which reveal his true activity. I want to say, whoever you are, whatever Satan will do, he will try to incapacitate you. If you're not a Christian, he'll incapacitate you from listening to the gospel and hearing it, which is why some of you maybe are already thinking about how long is this going to go on and when will I get my lunch and what's going to happen tomorrow and what won't happen yesterday. But if you are a Christian, what Satan seeks to do is to incapacitate you. He will choose your weak point, your Achilles heel, to neutralize your effectiveness. And if he can do that, he will be content. But wherever his authority in a person's life is challenged by the greater authority of Jesus, then his power and his presence is exposed and his opposition voiced. In this case, it's seen in the man in a mixture of fear and defiance. How interesting. Even though no one else seems to recognize it, this man recognizes who Jesus is. And he knows that he and his colleagues, not the plural, us, are facing one who has the power not only to defeat, but to destroy them. Recognition, he says. I know who you are. He recognizes that this man is human, Jesus of Nazareth, but also divine, the Holy One of God. It's probable that the declaration of who Jesus is was an attempt to defeat him because it was believed that the knowledge of a person's name gave you power over them. If you've worked in different parts of the world, you'll know sometimes people are very reluctant to give their names to you. Their names, particularly their special names, are secret names. You don't tell the person your name because then you get power over them. In this case, it is totally ineffective because the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords has power. Once again, Jesus speaks with authority. This time, he speaks a direct word of authority and the demon is expelled from the man. He rebukes him. Be quiet, says Jesus sternly. Come out of him. Jesus does not need or want publicity from demons. He says literally, be muzzled. It's the word used of of an animal being muzzled. J.B. Phillips paraphrases it. Hold your tongue. The authority of Jesus is such that the demon has no choice but to leave and the man is released. The evil spirit shook the man violently, came out of him with a shriek. And this is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. As Jesus' ministry advances, so he confronts the powers of darkness, the demonic powers that are at work in society, and he confronts them and he delivers those who are held in bondage to them. And that points to the 
future victory of Jesus. We saw last week those wonderful words in Colossians 2.15 that at the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and authority. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's a picture of the Roman general who goes on a great victorious campaign and when he comes home, he walks through the streets of Rome and trailing behind him in chains are all the powers that he's defeated, all the princes and kings and rulers of the nation that he has conquered. And so it is with Christ and his cross He marches in victory and all the powers of darkness following his train, disabled, disarmed. This incident reminds us that Jesus is the conquering king. He's come not only to expose the works of the evil one, but to destroy them and to defeat him. We already thought of the verses in the song we sang with the children. The purpose of the coming of Jesus, John says in his first letter, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3, 8. So the authority of Jesus is seen not only in his teaching, but over evil powers. And then the story moves from the synagogue to the home of Simon uh, and Peter, and to the home where Simon Peter's mother is ill with a fever. And we read simply that Jesus goes to her, takes her hand, and helps her out. You find that in verses 30 and 31. The fever leaves her, and she's able to wait on Jesus and his disciples, the word wait there is the same word used in verse 13 of the angels who waited or attended on Jesus after his temptation. And this incident and what follows shows us that the authority of Jesus is seen in a third area, in his teaching over the powers of evil and now his authority over sickness. And the news of this power of Jesus to heal and cast out demons, spreads rapidly. We read it spreads throughout the whole town of Capernaum. Huge crowds of people gather Needy people gather at the door of the house where they're staying. Very interesting. We read it happened after sunset. Here we are again with Sabbath rules. You weren't allowed to do anything till the sun had set. As soon as the sun went down, that's the end of Sabbath. And everybody then rushes to this house. One writer comments, When the synagogues were closed, the official business of worshipping God was over, then in the open air, the real work of the kingdom began. And so we read, and notice again the distinction between the two, that Jesus healed many who had various diseases and also drove out many demons. Now, many people reading this, and maybe you're among them, begin to ask questions. And the questions we ask are questions about, what about these kind of things today? What about exorcisms, demon possession? What about healings and the power of Jesus? I simply want to say that when you ask that, you're asking the wrong questions about the wrong time. Mark's purpose in writing this gospel is not to tell us what Jesus does today, although that is relevant, but he writes to tell us what he did then in order to demonstrate that he was and is the Son of God, the King who has authority over every area of life and especially those areas that are symptoms and consequences of living in a fallen world. It's evidence that Jesus is the King. Sure, when many of you, when you were younger, read C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories. You remember the first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When they go through the wardrobe, the children, the whole of Narnia is held in the grip of deep winter. It's snow and ice everywhere. But with the coming of Aslan, the lion, remarkable things begin to happen. The snow begins to thaw. The winter begins to recede. The flowers begin to bloom. Spring arrives because Aslan is on the scene. And so it is with the coming of Jesus. 
as Jesus comes into the world, so the powers of darkness, the powers, uh, the lives of people that have been gripped and held by sin, Satan's rule in the world is being challenged, and spring begins to arrive. And so as we go through Mark's Gospel, we'll see this. We see that Jesus has authority over nature. He can still a life-threatening storm. He can walk on water. He can feed hungry crowds with a few loaves and fishes. He even has authority over death and can raise dead people to life again. All this is evidence that points to his identity. Clues that should convince the observers who see this, who were present, and the readers of his Gospel like us who are not, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the King who demonstrates his authority. That is the reason the Gospel has been written. But the evidence is not absolutely overwhelming or compelling, both now and then. As we see, as we turn from Jesus and his authority to the response of the people. And the key word here is not authority, the key word is amazement. The amazement of the people. Wherever Jesus goes, people are amazed, astounded, dumbfounded. Mark uses all sorts of Greek words to express this, very expressive words, hit in the mouth. And even people are afraid. And Mark reports this reaction again and again using a number of different words. What I want to do is simply read some of them and then just make one comment about it. Alright? Just follow with me and I'll read them out. They're on the screen as well. As we've seen, the people are amazed at the teaching of Jesus. The people are amazed, verse 1, uh, 22, at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and others the teacher of the law. On seeing the evil spirit come out of the man, they're even more amazed. The people are all so amazed, they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. In the next chapter, we'll see that people are amazed when Jesus heals a paralyzed man. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Then the disciples are not just amazed but terrified when Jesus stills a life-threatening storm. Chapter 4, verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. When Jesus delivers another man possessed by a legion of demons, the local inhabitants are afraid. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And this transformed man spreads the news of what Jesus had done for him. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Even more remarkably, Jesus raises a dead girl to life, and those present are astonished. Chapter 5, verse 42. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. The disciples were amazed when they see Jesus walking on the water on the Lake of Galilee and then climbing into the boat with them. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. And after Jesus cleared the temple in Jerusalem, we read again, the crowd were amazed at his teaching. Uh, chapter 11, verse 18, the chief priest, the teacher of the law, heard this. They began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And this is repeated when he responds to the trick question of his, of his critics. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's, and they were amazed at him. Chapter 12, verse 17. And even when he is on trial for his life before the Roman governor, who has the power of life and death, Given to him by the greatest empire on earth, Pilate is amazed. Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. 
wherever Jesus went, he evoked this remarkable response of amazement. There were people who were appreciative for all that he had done for them. There were people who were antagonistic, who claimed that what Jesus was doing, he was doing by the power of the devil. But Jesus never made a neutral impression on people. But I only have one point. My point is this. What is truly amazing is how few people believed in him and accepted him as king and became his followers. So John comments in his gospel on the lack of response from the religious leaders, the ones who should have seen it. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. John 12, verse 37. And at the end of his life, the crowd, many of whom had witnessed what he had done and knew all about it, cried, away with him, crucify him, we will not have this man to rule over us, we have no king but Caesar. You see, we fondly imagine, do we not? Ask yourself, if I had been around when Jesus walked on earth and had seen these miracles, I would have believed in him. And we also believe, if only my friends could see some remarkable miracle that Jesus would do, they would then be convinced and become followers of Jesus. However, the reality is that most people will not follow Jesus, not because of the evidence, but despite the evidence. I happen to believe, firmly, that Jesus has the power to deliver people today from the power of evil and the power of evil spirits. I happen to believe that Jesus has the power to heal sick people, though I don't believe in the same degree and to the same extent as when he himself was on earth. But my experience of such things where I've seen them happen is that it does not always follow that those who experience these things become followers of Jesus. And it is certainly not my experience that those who see them happen become followers of Jesus. Oh, they're amazed. They're impressed by Jesus. Wonderful, great teacher, wow, wonderful miracles. Obviously a very remarkable man. Some might even say, greatest person who ever lived. But they don't become followers of Jesus. If I put it in absolute clear terms, some of you had a difficulty getting in Charlotte Chapel this morning. Can I, can I say, and it, this is probably absolutely accurate, if all the people who had been helped through this church in the last ten years in remarkable ways in answer to prayer through Jesus Christ and through his people, even in this one church, you wouldn't have got in this church this morning. You'd have been standing at the door like the people were at Capernaum when Jesus was present. Because people come because they've got needs. And God graciously meets their needs. He puts together broken marriages, broken bodies. Needy people. But when the problem is over, they go away. Why? Because we do not want to accept his terms, which are still the same today. The reason and unwillingness to accept what Jesus demands. What does he demand? What he's always demanded. Repent and believe the good news. To repent means to turn from my self-centered way of life And to believe means to put my trust and confidence in Jesus Christ and allow him to take over the reins of my life. To trust that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for my forgiveness and that he is therefore Lord of all who has authority over my life. 
And I simply ask you this morning, as Colin put it so graphically to the children, are you a fan of Jesus or are you a follower of Jesus? Who runs your life? Who's in control? You see, let me use an illustration. Most of us don't want the chauffeur to drive our car for us with us as the passenger. Most of us want an AA patrolman to come and dig us out of a hole when we crash the car, put it back together again, and then allow us to go on doing the same thing again and again and again. But Jesus wants to be Lord of our lives. He has authority. He has the right. The question is, do we allow him to do that? You see, amazement is not enough. And this is the challenge of Mark's gospel. Yeah, he is the king. His word has power and authority. He has authority over every area, but he will not impose his authority upon you. He will not grab you by the throat and force you into his kingdom. He will not push you down and make you submit and push you down onto your knees. You must come voluntarily, willingly, gladly, and allow him to be your king and allow him to be your Lord. And I ask you this morning, are you a follower of Jesus? Have you repented? And have you believed, committed your life to Christ? This is the simple challenge of this passage. This is why Mark wrote his gospel. And some of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, but in reality are running our own lives our way and simply come along when we get in a hole and ask God to dig us out of it again, be thankful that God graciously does that. But would it not be better to move over and let him drive the car? Would it not be better to allow him to rule and reign in your life as Lord of all? Wouldn't your life be a lot better? Wouldn't God's kingdom be advanced more greatly? If you are willing to do that, amazement is not enough. Let's pray together.